0: Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we'll be covering Alma chapters 31 and 32. This is the first of two videos where Alma and his group will be preaching to the Zoramites in the land of Antionum. And speaking of the Zoramites, that leads to our trivia question. The Zoramites, as we will see, basically just went to church to show off. They had a high platform where they would take turns bragging about being saved. So what did the Zoramites call this platform from which they boasted? We find the answer to this in Alma chapter 31, and it's pretty straightforward. Now the place was called by them Rameumptim, which being interpreted is the holy stand. And there you have it. It was called the Rameumptim. And now on to Alma 31, where we will see them using it. As the high priest of the church... Alma was responsible for helping his people stay on the straight and narrow path, which was apparently a never-ending task. After dealing with Korihor in the last chapter, his next concern was another group of Nephites who lived in the land of Antionum. They were led by a man named Zoram, who was rumored to be, quote, leading the hearts of the people to bow down to dumb idols. And in addition to being concerned for their spiritual welfare, the Nephites also had a political concern. Here's verse 4. Now the Nephites greatly feared that the Zoramites would enter into a correspondence with the Lamanites and that it would be the means of a great loss on the part of the Nephites. In my opinion, that verse emphasizes that the divide between the Nephites and the Lamanites was more religious than it was racial. Earlier in Alma, we read of both the Amlicites and Amulonites living freely among the Lamanites, despite being of full or partial Nephite ancestry. Also, when the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi joined the church, they were no longer numbered among the Lamanites. If Zoram's followers in Antionum entered a relationship with the Lamanites, they would probably be lost as Nephites. Hoping to save the Zoramites and to keep them from joining the Lamanites, Alma wanted to try the virtue of the Word of God, as it says. And he gathered the strongest team of missionaries available to him. He recruited Amulek, who had preached with him in Ammonihah, and Zeezrom, the lawyer that he and Amulek had converted there. He invited three of the sons of Mosiah whose mission to the Lamanites had converted thousands, while Hemni the fourth son stayed behind to watch over the church in Zarahemla, and lastly he brought two of his own sons, Shiblon and Corianton. Unlike the Nephites, the Zoramites refused to keep the commandments or observe the law of Moses. They also refused, it says, to observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily, that they might not enter into temptation." The phrasing of that last sentence, to observe the performances of the church, is intriguing to me because it makes it sound as though the church provided a structure for the Nephites' daily prayer. That's just what it sounds like, we don't know that for sure. Reportedly, the Zoramites were worshipping, quote, dumb idols. But, as always, I question whether that means they were really worshipping and attributing one's blessings to statues, or if it meant something else. Alma, prior to his conversion, had also been described, in Mosiah 27.8, as a very wicked and an idolatrous man. And as we watch the Zoramites, we'll see that their patterns of worship did not appear to include idols as we think of them. In fact, there's no mention of idols anywhere in this whole episode. If they idolized anything, it was themselves. In their worship services, they took turns standing on a high platform, one by one, and loudly and publicly, giving thanks to God. Although the Zoramites thanked God from their platform, which was called a remiantum, as we covered in the trivia question, the prevailing sentiment was not one of gratitude. Each person repeated exactly the same phrases as everyone else, and the phrases were essentially what you might call humble bragging or maybe just plain bragging. Here's an example. We believe that thou hast elected us to be thy holy children, and also that thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. Or thou hast elected us that we shall be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast by thy wrath down to hell, for the which holiness, O God, we thank thee. Rather than daily expressions of gratitude, Zoramite prayers were a weekly look-at-me moment. Here's verse 23. Now after the people had all offered up thanks after this manner, they returned to their homes, never speaking of God again until they had assembled themselves together again to the holy stand to offer up thanks after this manner. Seeing what the Zoramites were doing, Alma was overcome with grief. It says he lifted up his voice to heaven in prayer. And we have the words of his prayer, perhaps so that we can contrast them with the prayers of the Zoramites. In his prayer... Alma lamented the gross wickedness, the pride, and the love of wealth of the Zoramite congregation, and he asked for the strength to bear it. He asked to be able to suffer these afflictions which should come upon him. He requested a blessing of comfort upon those in his group and asked that they would be successful in bringing their brethren back to Christ. Verse 38, And it came to pass that when Alma had said these words that he clapped his hands upon all them who were with him. And behold, as he clapped his hands upon them, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Then they separated, each going his own way. And we have another of the brief summaries that Alma intersperses here and there throughout his writing. Here's verse 38. And the Lord provided for them that they should hunger not, neither should they thirst. Yea, and he also gave them strength, that they should suffer no manner of afflictions, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Now this was according to the prayer of Alma, and this because he prayed in faith. Then we move to chapter 32. Alma and his group began preaching to the Zoramites. They preached in their homes, their synagogues, and in their streets. Most of the success that they had was among the poor people who were cast out of the synagogues, it says, because of the coarseness of their apparel. Alma was on the hill speaking to a multitude when a large group of people in coarse clothing approached him. Verse 5, And they came unto Alma, and one who was the foremost among them said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do? For they are despised of all men because of their poverty. Yea, and more especially by our priests, for they have cast us out of the synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands. And they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty, and we have no place to worship our God. And behold, what shall we do? This question, what shall we do, is music to a missionary's ears. It's the same question that King Lamoni's father asked Aaron. It was asked of Peter by the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Hearing it, Alma, it says, said no more to the group that he was addressing, and instead he turned to face the newly assembled multitude of poor people. His audience now wanted to know how they were supposed to worship if they were not allowed into the synagogues which they had helped to build. But Alma implied that they probably got more benefit from being kept out of the synagogues than the worshipers did by attending it. Rejection had made them humble, and as Alma says, a man sometimes, if he is compelled to be humble, seeks its repentance. But even more blessed, Alma said, are those who humble themselves because of the word without being compelled, and are baptized without stubbornness of heart. And then, remembering his encounter with the sign-seeking Korihor, which we discussed in our last video about Alma 30, Alma continued in verse 17, Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, we shall know of a surety, and we shall believe. Now I ask, Is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. For if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe it, for he knoweth it. When we're at church, some of us might envy those who know or claim to know that something is true. But the first principle of the gospel is not knowledge. It's faith, and faith is not certainty. As Alma said in verse 21, If ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. To live by faith is to be driven by hope. And, and that, perhaps, is faith's advantage over knowledge. Faith is a driving force. Knowledge may or may not motivate us to do anything. Laman and Lemuel knew that they had seen an angel. They had knowledge, but they didn't have faith. And a lot of us are surprised when we see someone do something despite knowing better. But knowledge isn't a bad thing either. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Alma then taught his congregation about faith using a seed as a metaphor. People frequently say that Alma chapter 32 provides a recipe for learning whether the gospel is true, but in my opinion, the emphasis of this chapter is the more important question of whether some aspect of the gospel is good. Later in Moroni 7, we'll have a sermon by Mormon on how to lay hold on every good thing. The last sentence of the 13th article of faith says, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or good report, or praiseworthy... We seek after these things. Alma explained that if his audience wanted to know whether the words he was teaching would lead to good results, they could test them in the same way they would test a seed. Verse 28. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief, that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts, and when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourselves, it must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my mind, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. So if you want to test if a seed is a true seed or a good seed, and by the way, that's the only time the word true appears in this chapter, you need to plant it, care for it, and observe the results. And if you plant a seed and it grows, then you know that it was a good seed. In fact, you have a perfect knowledge that it's a good seed. Verse 33, And now, behold, because ye have tried the experiment, and planted the seed, and it swelleth and sprouteth and beginneth to grow, ye must know that the seed is good. And now, behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant. And this because ye know. For ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye know that it hath sprouted up, and your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your mind doth begin to expand. My opinion for just a minute. I hear and have heard several young men getting ready to go on missions, saying that they don't know for sure whether the church was true. And that's a little frustrating to me because, and again this is just my opinion, knowing that the church is true might be the wrong target. Forget about the word true for just a minute. Is it good? You've been watering and caring for the seed for 18 years now. Is it good? A typical response is, well, yeah, I know that it's good. And according to Mormon and Moroni 7, the big question is, how do we lay hold on every good thing? So a young man fretting about whether he knows the church is true would be like a bodybuilder who's been working out in the gym for several years, agonizing over whether the gym is true. Well then, if you've spent your life doing something, and you know that it's good, and it's given you good results, get out there and tell someone else about it. Help them lay hold on every good thing as well. And again, that's just my opinion, and it's how I see things. So, coming back to our topic, I wonder how things might be different if, when we wanted to learn whether something was true or good, Instead of praying about it, we did as Alma suggests and planted the concepts we are trying to test and gave them an opportunity to grow. I'm reminded of a quote from the journalist and theologian Keith Chesterton. He said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Alma taught the same concept. But if ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up and cast it out. Now this is not because the seed was not good, neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, but it is because your ground is barren, and ye will not nourish the tree; therefore, ye cannot have the fruit thereof. Think about Korah for a minute. He wanted a sign. He wanted Alma to give him proof that God existed. He didn't want to put any effort into it. And as Alma taught, if you don't care enough to take care of a seed, you'll never know if it was any good. What's really interesting to me about Korahor is that when the devil first approached him, he didn't believe the words of the devil either. But he put them to work. He started to preach them. And when he saw that they gave good results, he concluded that they were good. So Korihor actually implemented the principle that we're talking about. The only problem is that he applied it to the words of the devil. And although it gave him short-term success, it did not end well for him, as we talked about in the last video. Another important aspect of the gospel is patience. And in this regard, a tree is an especially good metaphor, because growth is so incredibly slow. It's so slow that it's imperceptible. Trees may take months to sprout and years to grow. Results are not immediate. To someone who has no real interest in growing a tree, to someone who is simply going through the motions because they were told to do so, the process of growing a tree will feel like a complete waste of time. Generally, when someone plants a peach tree, it's because they want peaches. Or, if we want to use gospel terminology, it's because they hope for peaches. We said earlier that faith included the element of motivation. Why are you going through the bother of planting a peach tree? Why not an elm tree? It's because you're hoping for peaches. If you don't care whether you get peaches or not, you're not going to bother planting and watering the tree. As Mormon said in Moroni 740, How is it that ye can attain unto faith, save ye shall have hope? Before you begin to exercise faith in something, you first hope for the blessing that it provides. Think of Laman and Lemuel and Lehi's vision, where we also talked about a tree. Why didn't they join Lehi in eating fruit from the tree? Because it wasn't what they wanted. They probably wanted to be on the other side of the river with all of the rich people in the great and spacious building. Telling Laman and Lemuel to live the gospel so that they could experience its blessings would be like telling someone who hates peaches to plant a peach tree. That would be a lot of work for something you don't really want in the first place. So to have the faith to plant a tree, you need to want the fruit. And again, that's where hope comes in. Returning to Alma in verse 41, But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your faith, with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life." And because of your diligence, and your faith, and your patience with the word, and nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. Then, my brethren, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long-suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. And that's the end of Alma 32. And now it's time for our trivia question. We said at the beginning that Alma was joined by his sons Shiblon and Corianton in teaching the Zoramites. He also had a third son who did not join them. What was the name of Alma's son who did not preach to the Zoramites? Who was Alma's other son?